Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, faithful adventurers, for part two of our episode 200 celebration. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and with me is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hello, everyone. If you'd like some backstory on why we chose to cover the Indiana Jones trilogy for this occasion, check out the beginning of episode 200.1. Patrick, I see no reason to delay, so let's make our way into the Temple of Doom, shall we? That was terrible. You gotta go... I would actually say we should put that up to a listener vote, but that would just really embarrass me because I think I would lose terribly. Oh my goodness. You're battling the man of impressions, and I extend my impressions to laughter as well. Yours was so much better than mine. All right, well, let's see if I can do a spoiler alert accurately. Folks, if you haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, then it doesn't really matter because that's not what we're talking about. If you haven't seen The Temple of Doom, then you should. It's that simple. This is the second in the Indiana Jones series of films, and we are going to spoil the heck out of it. So by all means, turn away now if you haven't seen the film. Go watch it, come back, and listen afterwards. We're going to start like we always do with our one-word takeaways, and Patrick, why don't you get us going? Serendipitous that you actually did a laughter there, because that's my one-word takeaway when it came to this entry. Uh, Not because it's a comedy, it's not, it's action-adventure, but I found myself laughing quite a bit at parts that I was supposed to laugh at, which is good, because if you're laughing at parts that you're not supposed to, it probably doesn't make for a really good movie. But I also found that from the very first moment we get introduced to what's going on with Willie and Indy and the kind of pickle that they're in in the uh, in the club, there is a lot of laughter. <laughs> There's a lot of laughter from this group of of Asian men that he's doing business with. And it doesn't stop until we get to, I guess, India where it gets a little bit more serious. But I found myself really enjoying my watch of this. I I knew that I I liked it a lot. And so getting a chance to watch it again for the show gave me a chance to experience it in a way where I'm focusing on different things. But I found myself laughing quite a bit and genuinely just really, really enjoying um, the, the adventure itself. Not having to think too deeply about themes and stuff, although those are part of it, but just really having a good time with it. So there was a lot of laughter coming from not only the screen, but also from me. It's interesting that you say that. I'm excited to kind of dive into that a little more because I agree with you wholeheartedly that this movie is a lot funnier than the rest of them as a whole. And because of that, you like it more and I probably like it less, which is Not a surprise to our long-term listeners. Uh, My one more takeaway was hashtag fortune and glory. (laughs) Yeah, I'm cheating, okay? But listen, by putting it a hashtag, I get it all as one word. Does that make sense? See see, see what I'm doing there? Perfect, yeah. Look, this is the most memorable line of the movie for me. And honestly, it's one of the most meaningful lines of the entire series. Shorty says, 
what is Shankara when they are talking about the stones for the first time? And Indy replies, fortune and glory, kid, fortune and glory. In my opinion, this sums up the entire series and really much of the adventure genre as a whole. I even have an excellent board game with this very phrase as the title of the game. And that game offers players the opportunity to experience a cinematic-like game in this style. It's a lot of fun. Indy's approach throughout Temple of Doom, to me, is in line with this thinking. It drives him, even though he understands the risk. There's a great piece of dialogue where this comes back up. Willie tells him, you're going to get killed chasing after your damn fortune and glory. And he responds coolly, maybe, but not today. It's this confidence amid the danger and the mystery of finding something that is totally unknown and valuable that makes stories like this really compelling for me. And maybe that's because on some level, I think that it also echoes a very human desire that many of us have. Fortune and glory, Patrick, wouldn't you want it if it was in your reach too? I absolutely would. And the way that fortune and glory is personified here in these Shankara stones, there's a moment where Indy, I don't know if this is by design or not, but this time around, when he goes down to the ceremonial platform to get the stone, which he's only looking for one, because there's only one that the village is actually needing. He pulls one out, he looks at it, and he looks at it just briefly, and then he puts it up next to the other two, in which it starts to glow, as he mentioned, because of the diamonds inside. And then he stops, he kind of grins, and he takes the second and third one. I wonder, Aaron, because he was talking about Fortune and Glory, I think, or it was it was echoed just a couple of minutes earlier, I wonder if his intent was just to get one or if he stole the second and third because he wanted to take those for himself in order to profit off of them, which would be somewhat inconsistent with what we saw in Raiders in regard to the Ark. It's not about profit for him as an archaeologist. It's about preserving history. So I wonder if there's something here when it comes to that fortune and glory that is somewhat intoxicating to him where he understands that these stones are not just an archaeological find, but they have something else that might bring him something personal. Well, I had to send the notes later on, but we're just going to go ahead and go for it now since you went ahead and segued into that perfectly. I, I think that you're hitting exactly on what I picked up on in the movie. I did not know that Temple of Doom was a prequel. I've seen this probably a dozen times. And for some reason, I checked out the trivia and the notes on it this time around and read that it was a prequel. Completely changed the perspective in which I watched this movie. Because now I'm judging all of Indy's actions as a character who has not gone through the events of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where in the past, I saw it a little bit more goofy because it felt weird to see him sort of what almost was like backtracking. But one of the things that goes with this fortune and glory and the pursuit of it, I think is ultimately the fact that he gets to a point where he realizes that's not the most important thing. He starts this movie 
in a great opening scene, which I want to talk about, and I'll throw that to you when I'm done, where he is essentially bargaining for a diamond. He is stealing artifacts and selling them for money. There is no other higher goal for him. He's not this renowned archaeologist who just wants to secure these old pieces of uh, history and put them in a museum for everyone to see. He's trying to get rich off of them. He is not the indie that we know in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's all about profit. And we see over the course of the film this arc where he, <laughs> no pun intended, where he changes, right? By the end of the movie, he is realizing it's not about putting this. He actually has a, a line where he says that straight up to the elders in the village, that it's not about putting these in a museum. It's about having them where they have meaning within the culture that they are supposed to be part of. So I really resonated with that. And that was part of why that phrase was so amazing to me, because it was simultaneously symbolizing the fun of the whole adventure because he was pursuing fortune and glory. But it made me happy that in the end, he realized that that was kind of an empty pursuit. Yeah. And I didn't know that either. When I saw that in the notes, I had no idea that this took place chronologically prior to Raiders, but the things that take place in it absolutely feel somewhat progressive, maybe not tonally because we have Raiders and uh, crusade that really have a similar tone to them. But we also have what feels like a very like Han Solo kind of character with Harrison Ford here. Dude, very I, young. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. Sorry. I legitimately wrote down this character in the beginning in that casino scene he felt more Han Solo and it more Han Solo and more James Bond to me than Indiana Jones. Absolutely. So I don't know that he's ever referred to as an archaeologist in Temple of Doom. At least I didn't pick up on it. I just picked up on the fact that if that wasn't told to us through any dialogue or any kind of exposition, I would have assumed that he's a smuggler, that he's someone who is doing exactly what you're saying, trading this for that to get something more. And to find out later, well, I take that back. I, there's a there's a moment where he says, I need to catch a ride to Delhi. I need to get back to my students at the university. So we know he's a professor, but there's not an elevation of his archaeologist side. He's really more of an adventurer in this, which I think is why I hold it probably in a higher regard than a lot of people do. I know that the general consensus is that it's the weakest of the three, even though it's really good because of just various things that are not in line with Raiders and with Crusade. But I think in a lot of ways, it's his whole arc and it's his whole story in this that make it feel like a authentic 1930s action adventure that my dad grew up watching. And I, I want to say that this was actually the first entry that I saw, which is probably why subjectively it ranks higher to me than it does to a lot of people yeah it's 1930s right down to like the absolutely awful fake punch cinematography there's one moment where he's walking away from the screen and he goes to like punch this guy once the brawl starts and he doesn't even come close it's like a soccer player flopping you know he swings <laughs> it's completely air and the guy just like throws himself backwards onto the ground i mean it's <laughs> so egregious Looking at it in with today's eyes, you know, it's so just obvious. 
Um, but I did want to ask, and, and laughter is a great place that, that takes, takes us into this because I know that's a big part of what you enjoy about that opening. We talked about the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark in the last episode and how iconic that was, how memorable it is, how it really sets the stage for what the idea of Indiana Jones as an adventurer and explorer is. How do you feel about the perspective we get from the structure of how this opening is done? Do you like it as much or more? It is my favorite of the three. And I'll go on record of saying that even while you shake your head. I was hoping that in the 24 hours since you told me that and I expressed my dismay, maybe you would have like prayed I, on this or I, or, <laughs> I tried repented to clarify, or something. I, I tried to clarify that it was not Willie Scott's singing performance that was the killer for me. It was everything that took place after that. Here's what I want to do, Aaron. At some point, I, I may do this with these three movies. I want to create timestamps of when the exposition leading up to the big action sequence is how long that is and then how long the action sequence is because what i feel like knowing raiders knowing doom and knowing crusade there's always this kind of slow build up with our characters and then a high action scene and to me that's consistent so in raiders we have indy slowly making his way through these ruins with all these different traps that climaxes with him taking the idol and then of course the big ball is coming at him and all heck breaks loose crusades the same way they're looking to steal something they get caught and now we're in a huge chase sequence doom is the same way although it feels different because it's very campy in a lot of ways it's it's less serious for sure than the other two entries and i fully fully get that But at the same time, I feel like what Spielberg did here, because this was done after Raiders, is I think he wanted to amp up the action. And I think he wanted to have a lot more fun with his set pieces. I noticed this time around that there were a lot of things rolling and spinning and rotating. There was the the giant gong that's used there, uh, which, by the way, I think there's an etching of C-3PO on that gong at some point. I think there's a reference to Star Wars there. Well, the club that they're in is called Club Obi-Wan. There you go. Yeah. So I think there's some Star Wars references there. The and Lazy Susan scene lazy is actually Susan? My, one of my absolute favorites in the entire film. The way that that is shot is brilliant. Just with the, the camera work going yeah. down to the Lazy Susan and it spins from person to person and, and it going back and forth in multiple times leading up to the whole poison concept like i just i the really like that you part of just it. direct dr jones I mean, so <laughs> there's so much about this that really just makes me happy and i think it's because of the amped up nature of the whole scene we not only get really fun dialogue we get really cool shots we get practical effects and practical camera work and practical chase sequences that we also get to be introduced to the folks that are going to be central to the movie indy willie in short round. And the way we get introduced to all three of these characters in and of themselves really appeals to me. And I feel like, yes, it's totally different than Raiders and Crusade, but it's doing something different. It's not trying to introduce us to uh, to just Indiana. We, we already get him. We already know who he is. We're, it, it's being used as a method to 
set up a scene later on where he's escaping from Lao Shea and he real and he he doesn't realize that he's on a plane owned by the guy Hilarious that will end up being savage. Yeah. So everything about that first third of the movie, and specifically that particular sequence, is unbelievable, but it's unbelievable for the sake of being entertaining. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that when I saw this for the first time, I thought this is a really, really entertaining movie. Raiders and Crusade, I think, have a, a little bit more serious tone because what they're trying to do is set up something probably long term. Raiders is setting up our main character, Indy, because we don't know who he is. So we're getting a lot of kind of exposition about him, the way he carries his whip, the way he uses his gun, all these things, you know, his famous hat, Crusade. We're getting introduced to him as a young guy and finding out more about why he is the way he is and then getting introduced to him and his dad. We'll talk about that in our next episode, obviously. This one is doing something different, but it's doing it just as effectively for me. Well, I enjoy parts of it, for sure. That Lazy Susan scene is phenomenal. Meeting Short Round. Hey, Dr. Jones, no time for love. We've got company. He's got great lines. Every time he talks, he's phenomenal. I really love the moment with the plane realization. It, it feels very Nathan Drakey as well to me that exuding that confidence like, ha, I'm so good and I got you. And then realizing you're not and you've been, you've made a mistake, right? But then it kept undoing itself for me with like awful CGI. I mean, the plane exploding. I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know what it was. It, it, it looks like somebody lit a piece of paper on fire and just threw the camera way back from it or something. The way that the raft tumbles off the cliff edge. I mean, there were just some really, really bad moments of CGI. Yeah. It doesn't ruin it for me, but it, they stick out. Um, well, it has and not I think, aged well. Yeah, and I think this is where Spielberg gets a little too effect happy. I think he gets a little too action happy. This whole movie felt like an amped up, version to its predecessor i don't feel like anything in raiders was overly done with the exception of the last scene where people's faces are blowing up and they're melting which i love by the way you know i've mentioned that this i feel like steven spielberg is like let's see what else we can do let's throw a raft out of a plane because you know what it's indiana jones he'll survive it's cool but i, I definitely recognize that particularly when the when they're when they're going down the raft and there there are like wide shots that show the raft going down a real mountain but then we get behind them and you can clearly see that there's a green screen that they're being either you know pushed up and down and it doesn't it's not very real so yes i think that's a product of spielberg trying to do more than he probably needs to and overall i thought most of the action sequences, including the one that I liked, were a little too long. It kind of said, okay, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. We don't need to see all of this. When you felt like the scene was done, all of a sudden something else happened. And I I get what he's trying to do. He's saying life never ends when it comes to uh, adventure for Indiana Jones and whoever he's with. But at some point you're like, okay, stop. We get it. Let's move on. And I think that's probably – it could have been – a little bit shorter on all the action sequences. Yeah, I would agree uh, that they go on probably a little too long. So one of the things I jokingly posted about when I 
said I was watching this movie about a month ago was near Halloween. And I had said, this is my horror movie for the week. And of course, people jokingly were like, oh, you're ridiculous. You can't possibly consider this a horror movie. And no, I don't actually really consider it a horror movie, I don't think. But it did lead to the creation of the PG-13 rating, uh, Temple of Doom did. And so my question was, do you think that it deserves its PG rating? Because it does have quite a bit of violence and gore once we get into the temple. Um, or do you think that it should have been R based on the time period? Uh, like, How do you feel about that whole rating snafu that kind of took place because of this movie? It's definitely more than PG, even for today's standards. All right, well, even for those standards back then. There was a lot inside the temple that went beyond just being gross. So the, the dinner sequence, I think, was entertaining. And I think it was somewhat just that's kind of disgusting when we start getting into moments, particularly from the opening sequence where you have that shish kebab being impaling one of the one of the Asian bad guys. That kind of sets a little tone for like, okay, well, that's a little little much. In short, I think it deserves a PG-13 rating because when you have that kind of torture, when you have those kinds of sequences, not just the gross out type thing. But when you have that kind of dark, um, what almost feels like a light version of Saw, <laughs> I feel like it needs something like a PG-13 rating because it goes from being somewhat campy to pretty dark in a matter of probably 10 minutes. I can, as I was watching it, I clearly kind of said, okay, the moment where he gives Willie an apple that's probably the last that we see of this lighthearted action adventure. And now we're going to when literally when he moves into that temple, when he moves into the wall with the, with the naked ladies and the bugs, that is where I think the, not really a horror aspect of it, but the really dark tone and probably where a PG 13 would have been applicable um, for, for the rest of the movie up until the point where they, they get out and eventually get back to the village. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think that it makes perfect sense that PG-13 came about largely because of this. I think it is a perfect example of what a good PG-13 is. Parents have that ability to make that decision for themselves. Is your child ready to see someone's arm thrust into a chest and pull a heart out? To see a body completely burned up in lava or is your child not you know and that's something that is a discernment issue and that's what pg-13 exists to be more than anything and so and i think that it, you're right like it is a tale of two different styles and i wondered how that worked for you because you have this incredible supernatural magical elements of a horror movie going on but you also have that crazy, campy adventure of the first, maybe even, it's like an hour leading up to the temple. And then also in the final sequence, it sort of leans more into that campiness of the adventure side again. So it's kind of like lighthearted adventure fun. Oh my gosh, really dour, scary stuff. And then it gets light again, minus, you know, 
Mola Ram getting eaten by a crocodile, a la, like Captain Hook style. But, you know, does it work? I, apparently it does, because you said you really like this one a lot. I do, but I noticed this time around how distinct those changes were. It felt less fluid as I'm watching this the on, on the recent viewing, and it did disappoint me a little bit, because... The pieces and parts themselves, I enjoy a lot. Like, I enjoyed that first third, and I enjoy the middle, and I enjoy the end. They're all really fun in and of themselves, but they feel a little bit too extreme when compared to each other. So there didn't seem to be a natural progression outside of a few pieces of dialogue that were giving me an explanation of where we were going. Okay, Pencott Palace, here's what's happening You've got some background that Indy's giving short round to tell us about the history of the palace. And then you've got the the conversation with Bloomberg talking about how they're we're getting into more supernatural spiritual stuff. I, I don't think it I don't it doesn't ruin it by any means, but it does take it down a notch for me. And it did this time around because of the fact that we go so extreme from one tone to another and back to the previous tone. So I wouldn't even call it a dip. I would just call it like a, a significant change of of tone where you don't give me the, the only through line for me is the action, is the fights, is the the great visual set pieces that I'm very familiar with. Heart being pulled out of a chest, um, the mind sequence the which again are consistent to an extent with with raiders and with crusade but when that's your only through line that's not probably the best thing to connect all the pieces together yeah i remember this movie more for its moments than i do for its overall a to b path so i remember I can tell you everything that happened in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I can like map out a sequence of events and how they occur, including the big memorable scenes. I legitimately had forgotten everything that happens up until they hit the Temple of Doom, Patrick. I did not remember. And again, I've seen it a dozen times. Didn't remember that it started in the club. Didn't remember the whole plane going down and them... James Bond style riding a raft down the snowy mountain. I, I just didn't remember any of that. The whole time in the jungle with Willie freaking out and screaming constantly. Thank God I didn't remember that, but now I do. You know, I, and it was just, it was weird. Like, but I remember moments. I remember the minecart chase because it was a really fun part of an Atari game that I played in the mid eighties. One of my favorite sequences of that. So I remember those moments, and I remember the heart being pulled out and things like that. But the whole structure of it just didn't have that cohesiveness and the flow to it that the adventure in Raiders or Last Crusade have. So it's, it's, it totally sticks out. And so whether or not people like it or don't like it, it definitely is different. And for me, it's not a style that I personally want to see replicated as what much as I prefer to see the Raiders style. Right. It would make me curious if one of two things happened. If this came out first, as it 
maybe should have chronologically uh, based on the time period. And if it was the tone setter for any future entries into the, the indiverse where those moments that you mentioned, you mentioned the way in which we get kind of campy, dark, campy, if that's the approach that Spielberg takes, if that became the formula for future entries, call it Raiders, call it Last Crusade. First of all, I'm glad that it doesn't because I prefer Crusade and Raiders in terms of their narrative a lot more than I do Doom. But it makes me wonder, because of the fact that Doom really represents that action-adventure serial flavor that I think Spielberg was trying to get at, I don't know that I'd be disappointed if future entries came after Doom that reflected it, maybe a little bit more refined, but that had some of those moments. It may not have been an overall better series or better franchise but i do wonder if we would hold doom to a higher standard if other entries after it kind of reflected the same kind of tone the same kind of formula that that it it did yeah you know it would definitely have been different and i honestly don't know how it would be received it's hard to say whether or not people would have gone into the second film excited and open to seeing the different formula you know those who really enjoy the campiness might have felt let down because that wasn't there the same humor is completely gone so it's a fascinating thing the way that it goes from raiders to temple of doom and then to last crusade almost like swinging a pendulum right it feels like so so in in a in a macro view i feel like just like with doom it goes from like one tone to another tone back to that one tone i feel like as a whole the three movies have gone from like this you know this level to down a notch and back up a notch and, and then back down if we were to keep going let's not talk but... about that let's not <laughs> talk about that that's blasphemy on this show and we will keep it at three <laughs> well some of the thematic stuff here is interesting to me Many have complained that Temple of Doom is racially insensitive. That is one of the most frequent things I hear about it, that Indy is a white savior, which I think is hard to deny from if you just look at it at offhand. He is white and he is saving an Indian culture. So, yes, by definition, I guess he is a white savior. Do you find that to be a negative at all? for you in watching this movie? I'm kind of an idiot when it comes to that kind of stuff because I didn't pick up on that until I saw it in the show notes. And I was like, well, great. Now I can't enjoy this. But I never thought about that going into it. And the reason why, Aaron, is because Indiana Jones as a character is never meant to go any deeper than his action and adventure. It doesn't make him a non-important character, but he doesn't embrace that sense of he's an important character in film. No, he's memorable and he's very much a character that we can celebrate. The thing is, yes, he is. His story in this is that he gets thrown into this village and he's basically commanded 
highly recommended, whatever you want to call it, to go get this stone and bring it back. We're also talking about the early 80s, and we're also talking about a movie that's not trying to be historically accurate. That doesn't take away from the fact that that is true. It is racially insensitive because we know next to nothing about this Indian culture. And so what we do know is from the mind of someone who probably isn't doing a lot of extensive research. He's using this group of people as a means to an end to push his central character, Indiana Jones, from point A to point B to point C. So in one sense, yes, it is racially insensitive. In another sense, it's kind of expected because that's not the intent. If this were done today, I don't think it would fly at all because we are very much aware of the fact that cultures and worldviews matter and we need to at least be aware of that when crafting a narrative, unless we're just being completely insulting by design. I don't think Spielberg was trying to do that. I think he said, here's my character. Let's put him in this situation. I'm not going to do a lot of historical research on these people. I'm just going to put him in this this area and use these people as a means to an end, which sounds bad, and it probably is. So, so I disagree with that. I mean, I, and I, I think I don't think you have to make a case for that, honestly. I think it's fine to say that it's not a problem, honestly, because the thing is that we are presented with this village who has been raided by these cultists. They have had their children stolen and they are clearly not capable of fighting back for themselves. It would be false to believe that every single culture was capable of fighting against something bigger. And this theme actually plays out a little bit or gets touched on throughout because Mola Ram tells Indy the story of what drove them to where they are, the cultists underground. He, he talks about how the British came, colonialized them, and, and slaughtered them, right? And so they were searching for all five stones so that they could be powerful. He actually tells Indy, you know, he will become a true believer and he wants the liberal God and the Christian God uh, to die, essentially, and that Kali Ma will rule the world. They feel this way because the British, who are touting the Christian God and liberal God, are killing them and are taking their land and pushing them out. I mean, if we're going to go white savior, like, let's be realistic about what is going on here. The whites came in and took over all of this, which caused this whole snafu in the first place. So I feel like... This village is, yes, India is a white savior, but he is not seeking someone out to save. He is, like you said, he appears in a situation which is not his intent, and he has the means and the capability and the desire to assist, and he does. And ultimately, he grows from that. That's the other big part of this for me is if Indy ends up using them and just ends up getting something for personal gain and they're a side project, it's a completely different story. But the fact that he is willing to learn that 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 piece of culture matters to them and so therefore it is more important to stay there and he grows in his understanding of that and respect for them, to me that's character development. And you don't get that. Everybody wants in the world kind of wants to get all up in arms and be like, well, why isn't everybody acting perfectly the way that I want them to act at all times. 
no one is born and acts that way. We all go through changes. We all grow in, we go through these experiences where we make poor decisions and eventually we end up making better ones. And that is what Indy has done here. And so I like seeing that progression. I do too. And when you see this in context to the historical narrative, it makes a lot of sense in how he responds in Raiders, how much more respectful, not just as an archaeologist, but as a human being he is toward the cultures that he's in. He's very much, even in in India, when he's getting fed, you got Willie who's like, no thanks, I already ate or I'm not hungry. He goes, this is more food than they've had in a week. They're starving. He's very aware of the fact that, and very sensitive to the culture, I think that there's a moment in the, I guess it's the third act right after, right after he gets the stones or right after they do something where he says, or they say, what next? So we're leaving. And he goes, all of us. And at that point, you know, it's about the kids. Like he's going to release the kids. To me, I think that there was a change of heart at some point in the movie where he was just going to get the stones and maybe he was in enraptured by the stones and the fortune and glory that at one point he wasn't even going to be thinking about rescuing the kids, but having that kind of progression allowed him to have some redemption by freeing the kids. And I think that plays a part in the rest of the bigger narrative with Raiders and eventually with crusade that he also battles a little bit of, and we'll talk about that in the next episode And I I still think that this would probably have a hard time getting made today just because we are sensitive to that kind of stuff. But I get your point, and I think it's justified. Well, there are two relationships to talk about in this movie, one with Short Round and one with Willie. And I want to start with the good news and talk about Short Round first because there's not a lot bad to say about this. There's nothing bad to say about this. We talked a lot about his relationships with various characters and how that was such a big part of him and who he was and who he becomes in the story of Raiders of the Lost Ark. How does that work here with Shorty? It is incredibly refreshing. It's the only relationship he has with a kid. And hearing the backstory of how he and Short Round met and how they've become friends, their chemistry is really great. He elevates him to a position not to be an adult, but to be an equal, to be a partner. There's that great scene, just these, (laughs) you mentioned it offline, where he's introducing himself, says, I am, you know, I'm Mr. Jones. This is Mr. Round. You know, he's trying to put him in a position where he is important because he is. I don't see him as a father figure necessarily, although that could probably be the case. But I think you have this relationship with someone who was raised on the streets and Indy brings him in and says, look, you're valuable. You matter. And to see how short round defends him, how he elevates him to a place where, you know what? He is a father figure to me, but he's also my best friend. And I think that it's just, it's a special relationship. I think it echoes in crusade a little bit because it's not just centered around a woman. I mean, we get some of that in Raiders with his relationship with Marcus Brody 
and with these other characters, but I think there's something significant about Short Round that I kind of miss. I want, I kind of want to see more adventures with Indy and Short Round because I think that it's not just good chemistry that they have, but it's how they help each other, how, how Shorty uses the tools around him in the same way that his character Data does in Goonies, that there's this creativity. And I think Indy appreciates that. And I think to that degree, he he trusts him in that regard. Yeah, there's definitely a manner of trust there. And I think that's one of the big key things that is unique and special because Indy doesn't trust a lot of people and doesn't have a reason to. But you're right, their relationship is super refreshing and it's just a joy. Every interaction they have, and to me, everything Short Round says is awesome. And I really like how it evolves through the story how we see them getting lashed at the same time. I mean, I don't enjoy that. Don't get me wrong. That's a very sad moment. But the fact that they're experiencing this together, that's what ends up taking place over the course of this adventure. Is Short Round starts to be Indiana Jones and see what it's like to be Indiana Jones. He takes the punishment. For him, he's in the same life or death situations as him. And ultimately, he has an awesome, awesome moment of his own where he breaks free from his chains. He climbs that ladder, also in the video game, by the way, a part where you have to climb that ladder and make a jump. It was hard. And then he pushes off that ladder, grabs a rope, climbs out of the pit while all the children below are cheering for him. I mean, that is an Indiana Jones moment. He gets to be Indy, right? And I was just full of joy watching that, watching the inspiration that Indy has had on him. And there's just, oh man, I, it's just special. I, and I, honest to God, Patrick, if I had to pick one relationship of the whole series that I love the most, it's going to come down to this one or ultimately most likely his dad, right? Um, we haven't talked about that or revisited that one yet, but I'm quite sure that it'll be just as powerful as it always has been for me, if not more than the last time I revisited it. But this one is right there with it because it's so special and unique. And I agree. It would be cool to see more adventures with short round. And I think that it's just Spielberg does a great job of pacing the development of the relationship from the very beginning when we first meet him and him just kind of helping and the way that we, get little snippets of their history together and it progresses throughout. It's not something we have to just fully believe all right at once. We get to see the progression of it and that's a big part of what makes it special. So yeah, I I love short round. I think he's awesome. There's another great scene where Indy is beating the slave master and the camera Spielberg man. So good. He's beating up the Maharaja at the exact same time, like they're in the same frame and you're seeing them fight together and like only they're fighting opposite people, but they're both fighting for ultimately the person that is the equivalent of them. It's just it's awesome. What I think is great about their relationship, just like with his and Miriam, is they have kind of this hidden language and for them it's an actual language. But there's a there are these quiet moments. I say quiet. It's on the bridge when he's talking to Short Round in his Asian, his native tongue, and Short Round goes, 
hang on, lady, we go on for a ride, you know, and like, oh my gosh, here's what's happening. She goes, he's crazy. He's crazy. He goes, he no nuts. He crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Are you nuts? Yeah. And it's things like that where, um, we see how comfortable they are with each other because in any given moment we have this equal opposite look we have short round who is nervous but he's like okay i trust you i'm gonna go ahead and wrap myself up in this bridge because i know exactly what you're doing and then there's k capshaw as willie who's like her screaming whiny self going oh my god oh my god oh my god and i i just think it it sets up a great contrast between those two characters and their relationship with her so that's a great point. They do contrast. And part of that result is that it elevates the relationship with Short Round even more so because we see such a different one. And most people hate Kid Cashaw's portrayal here of Willie. Most people are not fans of it. I think the general public is pretty outspoken about that. They don't think she's a great character. I see tons and tons of comments. People don't think she has any sort of like real value to this story. Do you see anything redeeming about her inclusion here? Do you think that it's a mistake to make her as aloof and and just completely ditzy to the point that they do? Do you buy the romance? How do you feel about her? She's the equivalent to me of Madison in Zombieland 2. And I don't mean that in the, I guess I do mean that in the ditzy sense. She's meant to be very much an equal opposite of Indiana Jones in order to probably bring out his, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe his kind of stoicness, his relax. There are times more often than not where I'm like, stop, stop screaming. She sounds like a six-year-old. She sounds like my son who just cannot stop talking, cannot stop yelling and I'm like, look, you need to control your role there. You need to just slow it down. Particularly the scene where Indy and Short Round are playing cards by the fire. And all she's she's running around to really just give us the information that she doesn't like being in the jungle. And it's played for laughs. But again, just like those longer action sequences that I feel like Spielberg spent a little too much time in. I think he spends a little too much time with her dialogue or her reaction in those moments where you're ready to just turn it off. I wouldn't say that the narrative could be better without her or with her. I think she she doesn't add anything of depth, but I think she adds a little bit of comic relief to it. It's just excessive to me. And to a point where at the end of the movie, she's the damsel in distress the whole time. And it ends up being like Indy gets the girl. But again, that's consistent with those action adventure stories. There's a line in there that I think is intentionally a groaner. And it's when he's being choked by the guy in his little hotel room thing. And she's like, I could have been your greatest adventure. And I think my eyes rolled behind the couch. That's how far they rolled back. I had to go get them because it was just so bad. At the same time, I also recognize that when you're going that kind of camp, you're doing things that are creating these opposite, you're, you're showing opposites to each other, which make the, from a writing standpoint, it makes it a little bit more effective, a little bit more entertaining. I just thought that if you'd had less of her screaming, less of her freaking out, 
she would have been a better character for me. I agree wholeheartedly. And I'm a little torn about that sequence and the whole romance in particular, because while the dialogue there is atrocious, you know, Indy wants to do nocturnal activities. Is what it's, called. it's so, so dope bad. Indy, I've had worse. Willie, but you'll never have better. Like you said, Ugh. it's, it's oh, 90210. It's, so it's Beverly Hills 90210. Right? And then, and then that greatest adventure line after that, it, it is terrible. But at the same time, I enjoy the idea of two people who are both very headstrong, who have a strong physical attraction and are trying to sort of seduce each other, but then both unwilling to be the one to quote unquote give in. And so then you have these two people that are like playing hard to get, staying in their rooms, like refusing to go see each other. I I enjoy the concept. The thing is, I just never buy Indiana Jones with Willie. And I think that's part of the problem with this being after Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, it helped a little bit when I realized it's a prequel, because I thought to myself, okay, so it's actually conceivable that maybe he was attracted to this type of woman once upon a time. And then we learn that he's attracted to Marion, who is complete opposite of Willie. And so when you go from the relationship that is so meaningful with Marion to him wanting to get with Willie, who has done nothing to earn his attraction other than scream in the jungle and look good. It just makes him feel so much more shallow going backwards like that. And I didn't like that at all. And like you, I, the most of it is reduced to the fact that she is just so whiny for the most of the time. Like she's okay otherwise but but those stick out and they ingrain themselves in your brain to the point where you just don't like her character when you think of her this does not take away the fact that i adore her in space camp as andy bergstrom you know she's a totally great different role yeah, yeah no like she's, so, she's great she exactly yeah she's so this is very much steven spielberg saying i need you to do this mm-hmm. and it's definitely not on her as an actress and the lack of ability to to, to perform, I would like to believe that she's going, really? I think they were married or they are married. I can't remember. I think they're, I think, I think they're husband and wife or at one point they were. Um, but I gotta believe that at the time she's like, really, babe, you want me to just scream at least 58 times in this movie? I, I, I don't know that this is gonna work. And Spielberg's like, I'm the director here. <laughs> Raiders was, was great. We're gonna keep going with this. I don't know. I don't know. Well, we talked somebody here about the fact that we both were shocked this was a prequel and it has had certain or it's changed the way we view certain things in Raiders. Is there anything in addition to the things we mentioned that you might have noticed when you think about the fact that this is actually a prequel? I think that there are little pieces that set up character traits about Indy. Um, the things that we've mentioned already notwithstanding I think that each entry gives us a bit of insight into what motivates Indiana Jones. I don't know why I have to say Jones because we know it's Indiana Jones. Um, I look at his relationships with people. I think that Doom helps us understand that he has to create relationships 
in different parts of the world in order to be successful at what he's doing. And Short Round's relationship with him, I think, is a prime example of that. We know historically, based on exposition, that they've been together for a good while and that Shorty's been a part of his world and his adventures for um, for quite a long time. That's consistent in Raiders and in Crusade, where he relies on the strengths of other people that may not want the same things that he does or may not completely understand, but they trust him. So I think in a lot of ways, Temple of Doom helps us understand that Indiana Jones is not a lone wolf in his adventures, that he has to have the connection to other people in order to be successful. Couldn't agree with that more. And I've said most of the things that I already feel about this. You know, my connecting point in Raiders of the Lost Ark episode was the entire sequence with the ship and the captain and and sort of the pirates who have his back and just how much people go out of their way to put themselves at risk to support him. I don't believe that where Indiana Jones is at the beginning of Temple of Doom is a place where that would be the case. I do not believe that he would have those people doing that. But by the end, when we get to have that incredible moment, almost almost my connecting point for this episode, where the village children are reuniting with their parents, it's so awesome to see the overwhelming surprise and joy from them. And that's because Indiana Jones was, like you said, he was going to go back and they were all going to get out of there no matter what. He was going to put himself on the line for other people. That builds the character retroactively to be someone who I understand now why people like the captain of the ship and that crew are willing to put themselves out there for him because they know his character. And so this is like giving us an example of something he did in the past that earned respect for people when he's at the point in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I like that. And then one really fun little callback. I don't know if you noticed it. He is facing off at the end of the episode, right or end of the movie, right when they have escaped the temple as it's collapsing and they're about to cross the bridge. And a couple of the cultists come up to him and they're swordsmen. And he goes to pull for his gun and it's not there. And I just, I just laughed out loud immediately because I was like, ha it didn't work this time. And then I went, oh, wait. That's not right. It's not work. It's not not working this time. This is showing us a time that it didn't work, but it did work the next time. And I almost wonder if Spielberg got a little too cute there because I don't think it plays as well when you think of it that way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't because at all. it doesn't make as much sense. Right. Right. If you're, if you're watching this in the release order, it's a perfect. It's you're a like, why would he do that again? Because it didn't work last time. Yeah. You know. But it works perfectly if it was, if it had actually already happened. Yeah. It makes it funny. So I think that was a little bit of a gaffe there in the timeline, but also at the same time, it's fun to see that sequence happen kind of again in a different way. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a dig at Willie because she lost the gun. I think that's, you know, (laughs) that's that's my theory. I'll take every negative for this movie just being a dig at Willie. I'm good with that. (laughs) Okay. Well, do you have anything else you want to go over before the old connecting points? I think that I have to give a lot of love to, as long as they were, 
the different action sequences. I think the most memorable for me outside of the heart being pulled out was the bug sequence. And see, I, it creeped, it really does creep me out. I just don't like bugs at all, but there's something that draws me to it. And I think it's short rounds line that says, it feels like I step on fortune cookies. And then the torch is lit and he goes, that's no fortune cookie. And then you see, you see Indiana just kind of pulling these bugs off. I, I love the fact that we, we get little hints of the fact that nothing really freaks him out except snakes and that he has no issue with that. I also think maybe this is a problem. Maybe it's just kind of a nitpick for me. Why are Willie and Short Round's reactions at the dinner table not being taken into account? It seems like they're the only two freaking out and nobody else really cares, including Indy and Bloomberg and these other male adults. Like It's like they're half a mile down the table and they're not noticing what's going on. It's not a bad thing. It's just something that I notice every time I watch. I'm going, how come... How come Indy's not really freaking out about all this crazy stuff? By the way, why are they not eating the same food? All these just different things that I noticed this time around of going, that's kind of inconsistent, but it was really more just kind of throwaway criticism at that point. Yeah, I mean, I just take it as Indy being respectful of the culture, like you mentioned earlier. He's true keeping those reactions inside, and he's always even keeled. That's one of the things that is so indicative of these adventure-type characters, is they're not mood-swingy. They don't have these extremes that they go through, because that doesn't work in their favor, ever. Right? That's not going to result in someone who gets the job done. Right. Um, I would never succeed, because I would I would freak out too much, or get too excited, and make mistakes. Uh, I I like the adventure sequences in this movie a lot, too. I love the mechanisms of going into a hidden temple with, you know, different buttons to push. And, right. And the spikes coming down. Those yeah. those are always fun. Those are very just common tropes. Or not tropes, but they're common... The puzzles. It's the puzzles, puzzles that are in these games and these stories all the time, but right. I never really get tired of them. They're always enjoyable. So, And I think they're I amped it. up here in Doom more than any, any of the other two, that they're very much on full display. And I think Spielberg wanted that, which is why I think he kind of went a little overboard with some of these and expanding their their length, for, at least for my, for my taste. But in and of themselves, I thought they were really great. All right. Well, let's go ahead and go to the connecting points. Mine is really not a very long scene. It's pretty short, but I think it is, for this movie, very powerful moment and really stands out. And it gives Temple of Doom much more weight than it would have otherwise. In other words, I think that I would really find Temple of Doom a lot more forgettable if it was not for this point in the relationship of Shorty and Indy. It's after he saves her. Well, not her being Short Round. After he saves Willie. And he's reunited with Short Round. And it's just this really brief little sequence. We see him put the Yankees hat on Short Round's head. And almost simultaneously, Shorty is handing Indy his hat, which we understand and know how important that is. And then it's the moment that it, it darn near brings me to tears, Patrick. He hugs Short Round tightly, and he just briefly rubs his shoulders. And Short Round says, Indy, 
my friend. And Dr. Jones says, I'm sorry, kid. You don't get that from him. That's not a display of emotion that you almost ever see from this character. And it comes after he has smacked Short Round, right? Before Shorty is able to snap him out of that black sleep by waving a torch. And I just, I love that sequence, man. It's it's a great end to that point where Short Round has said before, Indy, wake up. I love you. You're my best friend. And I think in this moment, Indy realizes that he put Shorty in danger. And it feels to me like maybe for the first time in this man's life, he regrets his actions and what they may have potentially caused for somebody else in his life that he actually cares about. Absolutely. And it was my connecting point to part of that leading up to it with the deception that he gives the uh, the bad guys after he snaps out of it. And he says, wait, he's mine. And he grabs him and he goes, he goes, I'm back, kid. And he winks at him. And then you get the music, the swell of music, the dun 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 And they almost simultaneously, just like with the hat exchange, they're beating people up almost in sequence, like what you would expect from two people that know each other. They know their space. They know how to be able to choreograph the areas that they're working in where they're not interfering with one another. That says a lot about trust. That says a lot about being able to be comfortable with each other. And that's followed up by that small moment that you mentioned where that exchange of hats and that exchange of dialogue puts both of them on full display in terms of what they mean to each other. And that's really why I would love to have seen more adventures with these two, because I felt like it was short-lived, no pun intended, not short-rounded, but short-lived, in the fact that we never see that relationship again. The fact that it takes place chronologically before the other two movies can kind of be explained away, like, hey, maybe short-round died, maybe something happened. But I would have liked to have seen more of that relationship because it is special. Short Round gives Indy an opportunity. It gives him the space to be vulnerable, which is something you don't see with Indy a lot. I also think that when you do see those moments of vulnerability, that's what elevates the narrative with him and Miriam, with him and his dad. You see that vulnerability because it doesn't come, doesn't come out a lot. It matters when it does. And I think that's a great through line with this entire series, with all three of these movies, is the fact that the people that Indy begins to develop trust with and has a relationship with, he also is able to be vulnerable with them to an extent where he, in any other case, you're right, he's very stoic, he's very controlled, he's very much not going to get freaked out when somebody cuts a knife into a snake and all the baby snakes come out. He's not going to freak out at those at those moments. He's very aware of his surroundings, but he has these moments with these people. And for for this movie, it was with Short Round. So, yeah, that was my connecting point as well. Awesome. Well, I'm glad. I love it when we have the same one. It yeah. Makes me feel like I picked the right thing. Huh. Well, <laughs> I know. Close, it's a not close, a win or lose. No. But <laughs> still. It's a close second. You know, a close second would probably be the, the heart being pulled out because, you know, you have to have a moment. You know, it has heart, literally. No, I'm just kidding. That's wow. terrible. I, I know. <laughs> well, part two of our 200th episode celebration is in the books, but we are not done yet, obviously. So stay tuned for part three coming in just 24 hours. 
Aaron, thank you for another great conversation, my friend, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.